Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for this very important fireside virtual conversation with Professor Vadi Nast and Representative Rokana. I'm Nargis Bajogli, an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. This conversation is a part of SICE's Rethinking Iran initiative that we started two years ago. As talks resume on the JCPOA or the Iran uh, nuclear deal this week in Vienna, we're thrilled to have Representative Khanna join us to discuss the future of the deal, as well as the future of US relations in the Middle East writ large. Representative Khanna represents California's 17th Congressional District located in the heart of Silicon Valley and is serving his third term. Representative Khanna sits on the House Committees on Agriculture, Armed Services, and Oversight and Reform, where he chairs the Environmental Subcommittee. Additionally, he is a Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, serves as an Assistant Whip for the Democratic Caucus, and is the Democratic Vice Chair of the House Caucus on India and Indian Americans. He's joined today by my colleague, Professor Vadi Nas, the Maji Khaduri Professor of Middle East Studies and International Affairs at Johns Hopkins SICE and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center. Professor Nas served as the eighth dean of Johns Hopkins SICE between 2012 and 2019 and as a senior advisor to US representative, special representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, Ambassador Richard Holbrook between 2009 and 2011. He's the author of numerous books, most recently, The Dispensable Nation, American Foreign Policy and Retreat, Forces of Fortune, The Rise of the New Middle Class and How It Will Change Our, Our World, and The Shia Revival, How Conflicts Within Islam Will Shape the Future. Before I turn the floor over to the speakers, I just wanted to let all of those in the audience know that we will be taking questions throughout the event. So please type them out either if you're watching through YouTube on the YouTube chat, or if you're following us through our social media accounts, uh, you can add us uh, and social on our handles and we will be reading those out later in the event. So without further ado, I turn over the floor uh, to my colleague and, and representative Kana. Thank you very much, Professor Bajorli. Uh, and uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Representative Kahana, for joining us today for this important conversation. It's truly a great pleasure to welcome you back uh, uh, to SICE. Uh, you have uh, uh, spoken a, a good extent about American foreign policy and the changes that it needs, particularly with regard to, to the Middle East. I wanted to start our conversation by asking you that now that we're a number of months into the new administration, where do you see our Middle East policy standing? Uh, has there been sh uh, shifts in, in, in fundamental ways in which we're looking at the region and we're dealing with the region? And, and what is your assessment about where we are? Well, first of all, uh, Dean Nasser, thank you for your leadership and uh, for having me back. And I'm uh, really honored uh, to do this uh, with you. I do think there has been a shift in approach. Uh, Secretary Blinken has said that uh, human rights are back uh, as uh, a front burner uh, consideration. Uh, we have had a shift, obviously, on Yemen policy, where the administration announced the end to uh, any refueling or assistance with uh, Saudi's uh, offensive war. In fact, I was just on before today this call to the Saudi ambassador discussing uh, what really needs to be done uh, to bring the conflict to, to an end. Uh, I do think in that case, we have to go further. We have to eliminate the blockade. And, uh, you know, I know the Saudis say, well, it's the UN inspection regime. Uh, but if there is going to be a UN inspection regime, it shouldn't be the coalition doing the inspection because they uh, don't have the credibility uh, 
So I think when it comes to the blockade, much more needs to be done. And David Beasley has said 400,000 children uh, risk starvation if, if we don't do it. Uh, but I've been encouraged at least that there is a special envoy that the administration has taking it, is taking it seriously. Uh, same with uh, Iran, uh, there's been a shift, uh, uh, really encouraging appointment with Rob Malley. I can't think of a better person. I've known him, he's wonderful, he's terrific. Uh, but we have to now give him the uh, reins to be able to, to get a, a deal done and to uh, not play a game of chicken. So all, of, all in all, I would say encouraging first steps, but they've really been baby steps. And now uh, we need to uh, uh, build on, uh, on them. Thank you. I mean, you mentioned Yemen, uh, which is obviously a major humanitarian as well as a military problem for the United States as well as Saudi Arabia. But in, in another case of, of a long running war, that of Afghanistan, which also the administration favors uh, an end to it. And, and I know you have also spoken about that. You know, is there, is there a room you would see to engage Iran on these, on these uh, conflicts in a, in a fruitful way that would actually allow us to get to where we need to be on Afghanistan and, and Yemen? Certainly one, I, I guess I don't, I don't think we should link, uh, I'm open to conversation, uh, Iran's in, involvement in Yemen with the nuclear deal. I think separately we, what we ought to call for is uh, all of the parties, whether it's Iran, UAE or the Saudis to stop funding the civil war. That doesn't mean the conflict will end, the civil war will continue. But until there are unlimited sources of funding coming from uh, foreign entities, it's it very hard to resolve the civil war and it makes the war uh, ongoing. So I think we really need to ask all of the uh, foreign entities to stop the funding uh, into uh, Yemen and to try to take it into uh, a conflict that becomes truly a civil war, uh, as opposed to any uh, proxy fights, or even if it's not a proxy fight, any funding coming from these, these parties. Uh, and then we should welcome uh, a regional solution uh, to Afghanistan. Uh, President Biden's instincts were right. He opposed the surge. Uh, his instincts on this have actually been better than most of the established foreign policy establishment, in my view. And so he needs to, uh, I think, now uh, that he has the power withdraw. Uh, now I'm not hung up on whether he does it on May 1st or whether he does it three months later or by the end of the year. The point is that uh, he needs to have a, a responsible withdrawal, I would argue sometime uh, this year. And uh, I'm encouraged uh, that it seems that that is the direction he's, uh, he's headed. Uh, we just earlier this week uh, for the first time, uh, uh, United States and Iran were at least in proximate talks on the nuclear deal. Rob Malley and his team were in Vienna. The other uh, um, members of the JCPOA were, were uh, participating in a joint, uh, joint commission meeting. Um, how do you see that move? Uh, do you see it as, a, as, 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 a, as getting, getting an opening into direct talks into the US going back into JCPOA? I do. If I, I, I may I, add, add to it, uh, sometimes for those outside, it's it's not clear whether the U.S. is is keen on going back into JCPOA or is it looking for a for a different deal, a bigger deal, uh, right at the outset. Uh, for instance, when Secretary Blinken 
testified before Senate, he mentioned, um, you know, adding missiles issues and regional issues uh, to the package. So uh, what, is, what is your thinking on, on where Congress sits on this? What might be um, the path forward here? Well, it's not clear to many of us in Congress uh, what the uh, uh, issue uh, is in terms of whether they're trying to get a better deal or get back into it. My view is that we ought to get back into it uh, first, not have a better deal as a precondition to getting back into it, and then we can negotiate the details. But we have to start with facts. When President Trump took office, Iran had 102 kilograms of enriched uranium. Today, they have 2.5 uh, tons. That's 25 times the capacity, and they're uh, headed towards a uh, nuclear capability if we just allow the status quo. So it is in our interest, more in our interest to get back into the deal to slow that process down than, uh, than not. And I, I think we ought to get back in if there are violations that we can snap back sanctions. Uh, and, uh, and, and Ron Malley's uh, participation is encouraging. I think he has gained leverage, his perspective, even the first few months of the administration. I, you know, he was kind of kept on the sidelines and there seemed to be some breakthrough last week. Uh, it's still uh, unclear, and, and there's a lot of pressure from uh, some of the more hawkish members uh, uh, in Congress. Uh, but uh, I, I'm hopeful that uh, they will see this as a continuation of President Obama's legacy and a recognition that the reset of the U.S.-Iran relationship in, uh, in, in any uh, way that uh, is constructive in the way that Obama envisioned uh, would do wonders for our, our policy in the Middle East and extricating us from these long ending conflicts. I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the, the dissent in Congress just, uh, I think yesterday or the day before, there were four Republican senators who, who wrote a letter to, to, the, to the president discouraging US rejoining uh, JCPOA and particularly referred to uh, Rob Malley's mission to Vienna uh, as, as a reference point. And before that, we had a joint letter by Senators Graham and uh, Democratic Senator Menendez, uh, also discouraging joining JCPOA in the hope of a of a larger, better, better deal. I was, and it looks a lot. I think I'm sure to the Iranians, but to others, that the Congress actually holds a lot of power here, in terms of how much maneuverability, maneuvering room the administration might have in, in pursuing this. I was wondering, is this a debate internal to within Congress, particularly within the Democratic Party, as to if those who are opposed to JCPOA, do they have a better alternative? Is there something that they, they want the administration to do in lieu of pursuing this path? Well, it's a great question. Uh, it is a debate among the Congress in terms of what our path should be. Uh, as you know, the closer we get to the Iranian election, and I'd, I'd love your views on that, uh, it seems to me that uh, the bigger risk that someone more hardline uh, would win. And then you may see delay till August until they could act. So I think that the window is uh, uh, not uh, very large. And I think you raise the exactly correct question. If, if we aren't going to re-enter the JCPOA, what is the alternative? Is it just to talk tough and say, well, we, we want our uh, our deal or we're not going to do anything. And then what happens if we're at a standoff and Iran uh, continues to, to develop? Uh, are we uh, then basically conceding that there is going to potentially be uh, a military uh, solution? And of course, uh, the solution to Iran's 
nuclear program is very different than uh, what happened in Iraq in the early 1980s. Uh, Iran is a far more sophisticated power, and I don't think there's any appetite in, a, in the United States to be embroiled in uh, a kind of military uh, exercise, uh, either uh, unilaterally or even on behalf of our allies or in support of our allies. So uh, if you believe, as I do, that there is not a, a, a good military solution, uh, then uh, there seem to be very little uh, alternative uh, but to uh, engage and engage with the, the rest of the world. Uh, one issue that has uh, Iran's supreme leader put on the table uh, and then was again reiterated by Iran's national security advisor that, that Iran will in the end of the day only talk about JCPOA. No, no, nothing more than what the structure of the deal was in 2015. And it also wants uh, uh, the U.S. to lift sanctions and, and verify that those sanctions have been lifted before it would uh, get into uh, full compliance. If, if that sort of ends up being the Iranian position, that, that uh, only JCPOA and only if it's verifiable compliance for compliance, uh, would that be something that's actually the administration you think can sell to Congress? I do, again, based on the alternative. I mean, I, I would hope that we could push for uh, more than that in terms of uh, a broader discussion of the U.S.-Iranian relationship. And that can cover everything from uh, our immigration policy to uh, the uh, Yemen to uh, the, the broader challenge uh, with ISIS and terrorism to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, I, I think we have to ultimately have a, a conversation about the, the broad spectrum of uh, the U.S.-Iran relationship, but recognizing also, by the way, the significant Iranian-American community in, in the United States, and uh, particularly in technology and high tech. So I think we have to have that broader, uh, it's in both countries' interest to have that broader conversation. But if the start is going to be the JCPOA, uh, I think we have to take uh, whatever uh, opportunity uh, there is. Again, if People say, you know, we throw out all types of words, appeasement, accommodation, uh, but you can throw out those words only if you're willing to back that up with saying, well, uh, there has to be a, a, a military option. And, uh, you know, when people uh, talk about uh, appeasement in the past, and I, and I agree that in World War II or others, there should have been a military option. But you can't throw around the view of don't engage if you're not willing to talk about a military option. And I just don't think that uh, in the United States at this moment, the American public want us involved in another military adventure in the Middle East. And so I guess my question for those who are saying don't engage is what is their alternative? Are they talking about support for a military option? Or if not, what is, what is the alternative? Very true. Uh, unfortunately, it's only those who ask uh, don't get engaged that seem to be getting a lot more of the public public space, attention in the public space, rather than those who actually talk about the serious uh, uh, realistic uh, scenarios that lays before the, before the United States. You, you mentioned this sort of broader set of relationships. I mean, the United States, of course, has, has raised the issue of regional security and, and dealing with Iran's role uh, in, in the region. And uh, we talked about Yemen a bit at the beginning. Uh, 
in your experience or assessment, do you think that the United States can, can expect uh, that Saudi Arabia or UAE would be open to serious constructive engagement with Iran if Iran is willing to engage uh, in terms of uh, reducing regional tensions or arriving at agreements in particular areas like Yemen, for instance? Well, I think the Saudis have first to uh, fix their own uh, issues, uh, obviously, uh, with the Khashoggi murder and MBS and, and absolutely no accountability. And I don't believe that uh, one has to have the view that uh, a sanction on MBS is destabilizing the Saudi regime. There's a perfectly large royal family. In fact, uh, I think the ambassador, the U.S., I was joking with her today that, you know, uh, she should be in charge of Saudi Arabia if they cared about uh, uh, their uh, image to the world. So there are plenty of other alternatives in Saudi Arabia that are within the royal family uh, that I think would be better for the Saudi uh, relationship with the United States and the world. Of course, they're a sovereign country. It's not for me to say, but I will say that in my time in Congress in the last five years, no country has deteriorated further and faster in their relationship with the United States Congress than uh, than the, Sa the Saudi kingdom. So they, I think, most urgently need to prevent this famine in Yemen. Uh, it, it's encouraging. I supported the Abram Accords. Of course, it's encouraging that they've uh, recognized uh, Israel and, and any time we can see some constructive uh, policy that, that, is, that is good. But I, and the United States should support uh, a dialogue between uh, the Saudis and Iran on regional issues to the extent that we can. Uh, what we should not do is to get into a Kissingerian view of preventing uh, hegemon hegemonic, hegemonic uh, power to emerge. And that's sort of the view, I think, that has often guided U.S. foreign policy, that we just don't want one country to get too powerful. And so we end up supporting the other country and has led us to uh, alliances and uh, conflicts that were better avoided. And so uh, I don't think having a zero-sum foreign policy where we're pitting the Saudis against Iran and trying to choose sides uh, is a constructive way forward. Uh, it's actually very true because that's exactly what the United States has done with, with its containment of Iran policy. And, and uh, it obviously would require us to think, rethink the Middle East completely if, if uh, we were to go down the path that you're you are suggesting. Uh, one other issue that um, is sort of as over the horizon is the issue of China. Um, you know, it's obviously becoming now also a bugbear for Congress and, and a lot of focus on, on, on China and our domestic politics and competition with China. On the other hand, uh, you know, there have been increasing contacts between China and, and Iran. There's talk of a strategic partnership, although it's not yet uh, that developed, but at least psychologically speaking, they are, they are moving in that, uh, in that direction. Uh, it's sort of, a, and, and you know, even President Biden said that he's been worried about this for over a year, uh, which means that you know they have been tracking it and and they see it as a as a serious serious issue to 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 ponder on. Is this would this uh, would this sort of China issue help or hurt uh, uh, our thinking on Iran as to whether it encourage us to sort of try to peel Iran off of China by accelerating some degree of uh, of engagement, or is it actually, uh, as Secretary Pompeo was suggesting before, that we should just lump them together as an axis of bad actors, and and uh, and uh, it's even more argument against engagement with Iran, and and um, we have to even 
add pressure to it. Well, to what end? I mean, the, the, the people who are benefiting from us keeping this, this trade of Hormuz open uh, are, a, are largely China and, uh, and uh, Asia, which is uh, our fleet is there keeping it open uh, for safe passage of uh, oil uh, to China and Asia. And China isn't uh, spending its GDP or involved in these Middle East wars. And so they're benefiting uh, from the energy relationship uh, with Iran. Uh, we're bearing a, a lot of the cost of uh, security. Uh, and if anything, I think what we would want is uh, to China to step up to have to bear some of the responsibility for the freedom of the seas and uh, for, uh, uh, for, for participating in a global order responsibly. Of course, there's concern with China and what they're doing in, uh, in, in the South China Sea and with the islands. And we have to be wary of the uh, they're trying to extend uh, their, uh, their, their sphere of influence that would hurt uh, commerce. But I think the way to do it uh, is for us to have better relationships with countries uh, near China than China has with them, whether it's Japan or uh, whether it's South Korea or whether it's uh, uh, Indonesia or the Philippines or India. And I would put Iran in the same uh, sense that if the, to the extent that we can build a, a better relationship with Iran, uh, that I think is more effective than allowing Iran to just drift into uh, the Chinese camp. Uh, I, what I would say is, why don't you have our relationship with Iran be based on human capital, on innovation, on entrepreneurship, ultimately, and have China's be based on the old energy model uh, that is uh, long term not going to be as, as sustainable. Very interesting. Um, and I know we have probably a fair amount of questions. I want to uh, give the audience an opportunity to ask a question, but I wanted to sort of end with this, um, uh, get your thoughts on, uh, um, if you were to sort of reflect back on 2015, when uh, the first nuclear deal with Iran was signed, and, and let's assume that uh, there, there might be a breakthrough in Vienna and before long, uh, something will come back to Congress for consideration in one form or the other. If there are lessons learned from 2015 for the administration not to end up in the kind of uh, sort of confrontational conflictual situation that it found itself with the with Congress then. And then on the other side, I mean, you know, Iranians uh, did not benefit from congressional hostility to the deal. I think one lesson they may have learned is that if an agreement does not have uh, support beyond the administration, it's vulnerable. And then I think in 2023, if the, in, under the old JCPOA, I think Iran was mandated to uh, implement its additional protocol uh, and, and the United States was mandated to ratify uh, JCPOA. So if you were to reflect back, what might be lessons you would, you would tell Rob Malley and the administration that this time around they ought to, they ought to take care and, and takes these steps so that we don't end up where we did in 2015 with Congress? Well, I, I think President Obama actually did a very strong job uh, in, in, in standing up for the deal and uh, making it clear to uh, groups opposing it that the, they weren't going to win, that the White House, this was a White House priority and the White House was going to get it done. And I think that that's a good uh, indication of uh, the approach that uh, uh, Mali need, should take and the Biden administration should take. It should, uh, obviously, I've never talked to the president about this, but if, if he has the view that this is something he's going to get done and he makes it clear that 
he's going to be behind this. He expects the Democratic caucus to be behind this. Uh, this is good for American security. And those who are opposing this are endangering American security interests. Uh, then I think it will get done. If they take a more tentative approach and uh, talk about good arguments on both sides and don't, don't have strong presidential leadership, uh, then I think it, 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 it risks uh, the fate in Congress. So I don't think that this is a case of, you know, uh, Woodrow Wilson with the League of Nations where whatever he did was probably not going to succeed. I think this is a case where the Congress is uh, divided and, and presidential leadership can make the difference. Thank you. So with that, uh, I'm going to ask my colleague, Professor Bajogli, to see if there are questions and to um, field them to the congressman. Sure. So we're actually having a ton of questions for you, um, Congressman. The first, um, uh, I'm grouping them together as they come along. Uh, a few people are asking about, you mentioned that human rights are back on the table with this administration. And so how can human rights in their various ways be addressed with going back into the JCPOA? Um, and as a follow-up question, if human rights are on the, are on the agenda under the Biden administration, how does that square with the continuation of sanctions, um, the Trump era maximum pressure sanctions on Iran, especially in the middle of a pandemic and the humanitarian crisis, uh, this person asked, that's been created by the sanctions regime, leaving many Iranians without access to life-saving medicines? Well, I called even in the Trump administration that when it came to the pandemic, when it came to food, when it came to medicine, uh, the uh, sanctions should not uh, cover those, that those are things that we should uh, lift regardless of the JCPOA, just on purely humanitarian grounds and on purely self-interested grounds that we want to eradicate uh, COVID uh, in, in, from every part of the planet, as President Biden recently said. Uh, more broadly, I think that we have to always be uh, reviewing, as Secretary Blinken is, uh, the sanction policy and seeing whether sanctions actually effectuate change in behavior uh, or whether they only end up uh, hurting the poor and working class and strengthening a regime in, in an anti-American uh, propaganda campaign. So I, I do believe sanctions are appropriate, uh, but looking at how we uh, have them be most effective in ways that minimize humanitarian damage and uh, minimize the ability for leaders to demagogue them, uh, but actually are putting, uh, are felt by the leaders themselves uh, is, is a, a source of review that we, we ought to undertake. Uh, in terms of human rights, I mean, there's no doubt that Iran has violated uh, human rights in, 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 in numerous cases, when it comes to political prisoners, when it comes uh, to uh, internal issues, when it comes in some sense to their funding uh, of the Houthis and supporting the Houthis in, in Yemen. Uh, but those are, uh, I think that the, the, the biggest danger to human rights is if Iran develops a a, a nuclear weapon in, 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 a, in a way that is uh, isolated from uh, American influence. And so uh, our, if we care about human rights, we ought to be first and foremost uh, preventing uh, the, the uh, Iran from getting such a weapon uh, and ensuring that we don't lose uh, Iran uh, completely in our uh, sphere of influence. Otherwise, if they drift towards China, that's not going to uh, help us for human rights. Uh, but we ought to, in the bilateral relationship, always bring up uh, human rights as a priority, just like we do in the China relationship with the Uyghurs. Uh, no uh, relationship uh, 
in a complex world is, is, is perfect where uh, we can uh, stop interacting if there are human rights violations. Uh, by that metric, we wouldn't have any interaction with many uh, countries. So it's always a balancing act. But I think what Secretary Blinken meant is uh, if there is a meeting in Iran about uh, our economic issues, about our security issues, uh, that human rights concerns will be uh, part of that agenda, uh, up front in that agenda, and not buried under the table. Um, the another series of questions that are coming up, you um, and you touched upon these in, in your conversations with Professor Nast, but um, folks are asking about what are the longer term prospects for the JCPOA in your mind if the Biden administration and Iran are able to sort of agree to a pathway back. Uh, but what from that point onward, especially looking um, into what potential, you know, if another Republican administration comes into power in the United States, given the fact that there's a growing field of fresh first term anti um, or a hardline sort of can't can't uh, Congress people within the United States, as well as it, depending on what happens in the Iranian elections, if that goes on into the more conservative hardline end. Um, so let's say that discussions in Vienna sort of lead to a, a com coming back in some ways in the next few months to the JCPOA. What do you see? Um, but potential measures being and in, in not sort of repeating the same things that happened uh, with the Trump administration? Well, first of all, the Trump administration was a unique, I would say, uh, cult of Trump personality. There were a lot of people within the Trump administration, who, even Mattis, even people who had opposed the deal, who didn't think it made any sense for us to get out of the deal. So uh, I, I don't think if we get out of the deal, uh, unless we have again another president, which you know you never uh, you never know who would be willing to ignore all his foreign policy advice, uh, that uh, that you're going to have uh, the reneging in the same way as we had this time. I, I think you would probably have more uh, continuity. Uh, but to the extent that uh, we've learned lessons. I mean, obviously, ideally, we would get some moderate Republicans uh, on board, at least get Republican voices who aren't currently serving in the foreign policy leadership uh, on board, uh, make sure that uh, our, as many of our allies are uh, on board and committed, uh, and uh, really uh, raise the uh, stakes for someone to come in and uh, change uh, policy. Uh, that dramatically. I think it would be much harder to do, and especially if you're not talking about someone other than Trump. Uh, but it is always a risk when you do something without uh, bipartisan support. Unfortunately, in this case, it doesn't look like we're going to have bipartisan support. And I don't think that should derail the agenda to try to be constructive. Thank you. Um, another series of questions touch upon um, the Iran stance of no direct talks with the United States and um, any ideas about for advocates of engagement such as yourself, what's the best hope to, to secure JCPOA return um, and then to sort of uh, work on that issue that Iran has stated that it will not be um, returning to uh, direct talks with the, with the United States anytime soon. So sort of squaring their line as you talked previously with Professor Nass with uh, the future of potential negotiations. Well, I, I mean, I think that it, Iran has to move from their position. I mean, my understanding is that uh, you know, they, they, that if we are willing to 
uh, make a good faith effort of uh, removing some of the sanctions that Trump imposed, uh, that they need to make a good faith effort of uh, engaging in, in dialogue. And I think long term, uh, as many of the Iranian American community in the United States would say, uh, it is not in Iran's interest to uh, isolate itself from uh, the United States, not just because of the United States and the, the incredible power will continue to be in the 21st century, but because we are a nation that represents entrepreneurship and innovation and pluralism uh, and, and, and youth and uh, all that I think the, the, some of the best of the future of the knowledge economy and the future of the world and why Iran would want to distance itself from that kind of uh, model of governance uh, and align itself instead with uh, I would believe uh, are more outdated models of governance. Uh, I don't think it's in the interests of uh, the Iranian people. And so uh, it seems that both sides have a real interest uh, for a reset of the relationship. Um, when it comes to questions of, um, there are a few folks asking about the disinformation campaigns, uh, social media disinformation campaigns. Um, and given that you are a representative from um, an area that is sort of home to some of these big tech companies, um, how, um, how should this question of disinformation on social media, uh, not just as it relates to domestic politics, but also as it relates to foreign policy uh, be, uh, be dealt with? And, and um, both from our perspective as, uh, you know, from our situation as uh, within the United States and policy and more writ large when it comes to our foreign policy. Well, I think it's a big challenge. I mean, on the positive side, the uh, internet has facilitated the possibility of communication. So today we know people uh, or, or reports from Yemen, we are more engaged around the world with the Black Lives Matter, you saw solidarity movements uh, around the world. You have the possibility of a more uh, empathetic, engaged foreign policy. Uh, on the flip side, uh, it has been a tool used for uh, polarization. It's, it's empowered uh, a parochialism uh, of a Bolsonaro or a Trump, uh, and uh, you, you don't always have uh, internet uh, participation leading to cosmopolitanism as internet participation can also uh, amplify uh, right-wing movements. I mean, that's what Steve Bannon uh, wanted to do. Uh, so uh, what is uh, the solution? I mean, I think that we have to really think about how we construct the, uh, the modern public sphere, uh, modern digital public sphere. There are a lot of ideas. I mean, one could be uh, consent before we give up our data so that people can't be targeted uh, and have algorithmic amplification of targeting people based on their sensitivity to false information. Uh, the second could be uh, public disclosure of these algorithms and stakeholder involvement in them. Uh, third could be uh, crowdsourcing of news. So it turns out if, if people are crowdsourcing what is credible news, there's actually a convergence between people across the ideological spectrum of the 10 to 20 sources that they see as legitimate, which is encouraging, and maybe that could be included in uh, a design. Uh, and then looking at how you design these platforms in ways that aren't just attention grabbing, uh, but actually are ex encouraging uh, rational exchange. But this is, we're at the incipients of the uh, digital age. Uh, when the printing press, press was created, it took decades of violence before we built liberal democratic institutions. And the challenge for us is how do we build uh, democratic values 
within modern digital architecture and, uh, and, and, and so that we can uh, have constructive public discourse as opposed to what we have uh, today. Sure. Um, there is uh, um, so there's a series of questions that which actually bring in Professor Nasta's book um, on the Shia revival, and but their question is is directed towards uh, Representative Khanna, which says that Professor Nasta's book, the Shia revival, outlines how Shia populations across West Asia are becoming increasingly integrated. Um, some uh, obviously diverge from uh, the stances of the Iranian state, but is there merit in attempting to move U.S. foreign policy towards a paradigm where the U.S. engages um, what sort of in mainstream analysis dealt, called, you know, populations that are quote unquote proxies of Iran. Um, so instead of viewing them as mass bases for Iranian proxy groups, that they could be um, reached, uh, had, have a broader outreach from the perspective of the United States within Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen, um, Syria, and is the, the visit of Pope Francis's recent visit to Iraq where he visited Grand Ayatollah Sisani, perhaps an, an opportunity for that kind of dialogue to happen. You mean outreach to uh, the Shiite community in uh, other Middle Eastern states and an engagement and recognition that they have uh, minority status uh, in states uh, where their rights have, have been uh, violated? Or, yeah, so instead, of the, the way that this person is asking the question is that, if I'm understanding this person correctly, is that instead of seeing them as, through this national security lens of being potential support bases for the Iranian state, as actually engaging with these populations across the region um, uh, from the perspective of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, well, I think it depends on... Uh who they are and, and what group it is. I mean, obviously, if there is a uh, specific group that the United States has uh, credible evidence of uh, terrorism activity, uh, like Hezbollah or, some, or, or others, then we have to uh, be uh, concerned about it. If there are other groups that uh, are not, just because they happen to be Shiite, uh, we shouldn't stereotype and club them in uh, as actors that are supporting terrorism. So what I would say is uh, we have to have a case-by-case evidence-based review that doesn't paint a broad brush of uh, anything that is Shiite as lumped uh, in with terrorism. Um, another question that's been asked a couple of times is um, to insulate the negotiations from political forces in the United States, Iran, and elsewhere, uh, why not rejoin the deal first and then use the dispute resolution mechanisms to achieve compliance for compliance? Well, I have said we should join the deal. I mean, I, I think let's lift sanctions, join the deal, and then snap back the sanctions, which we always can. I, I, I have not heard a good argument for why that's not a rational approach. If anything, it, Iran is the step. It would be one thing if Iran weren't developing nuclear capability. The status quo is they're developing nuclear capability. The status quo benefits them, not us. But we are the ones who need to change what the status quo is, unless you believe that the maximum pressure campaign suddenly is going to work. It hasn't worked so far. It's going to make things worse. The only excuse for delay is if you think that the maximum pressure campaign is working. And uh, 
I just think that that's empirically not the case, but that would be the only rational basis for saying that we should hold out. So I have some, sorry, just follow up on, on, on that point. Um, so during the campaign, it, it looked like uh, the rhetoric of the, uh, of the campaign was very similar to what you described, Congressman, namely that the US would go back to the deal and look for compliance for compliance uh, fairly quickly, uh, even potentially give all, uh, some, some goodwill uh, measures at the beginning, like allowing humanitarian uh, 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 flow of humanitarian support for Iran. But then when they came in, uh, uh, it looked like there was a different policy of, of uh, basically sitting and, and waiting for the pressure to work on Iran. Uh, and now it, it looks like maybe they're changing again. Is it correct to see that there have been shifts from campaign to the first three months to this point that, that, that the, ad, the administration's calculation has changed? I personally believe, I don't think this is a strategic question. I think it's a political question. I think the question is, President, understandably, uh, has a lot on his plate. He spent the he wants to spend his political capital uh, on getting every American vaccinated, on getting the American recovery going, on on getting uh, the infrastructure bill through. Uh, remember, President Obama didn't spend his political capital on this till the end of his second term, and uh, my sense is that this will require political capital on the behalf of the president. He's gonna to have to be willing to take on uh, and, and push some of the more uh, conservative senators, even within our own caucus. He's gonna to have to explain to the American people that this is not impeachment in any way, that this is strategic. He's going to have to withstand uh, powerful groups that uh, are going to say we're selling out on national security. Uh, and I think that initially he probably didn't want to jump right into uh, to that fight. But I uh, think within the administration, Mal Mali and others' voices have said you don't have an indefinite time to wait, that delay uh, is actually going to make this much harder. And that if this is a, something you want to deliver uh, on your first term, uh, we have to act. And so uh, I don't think it is strategic differences as much as political differences. There is, um, you uh, were talking about folks who believe that maximum pressure has worked um, and that there doesn't seem to be empirical evidence for that. So we have quite a few audience members actually who believe that maximum pressure has worked. And their line of questioning is that uh, by getting back into the JCPOA and by giving sanctions relief, uh, first of all, uh, how, how does that uh, pair with uh, giving sanctions relief to a state that has uh, a track record of, of large human rights abuses, will that just encourage them to continue down that line? And on the other hand, um, if from their perspective, maximum pressure is working, why then uh, come back into a deal that would give sanctions relief? Uh, and what does that mean into the medium term uh, with um, Iran's activities within the region specifically? Well, first, we don't sanction just simply based on human rights. If we did, we'd be sanctioning the Saudis, but we're not even willing to sanction MBS. So what we have to look at is our long-term strategic interests. And I look at it as Iran is a country that has 0.44% of global GDP. America has about 20-some percent. China has 15%. Uh, the entire Middle East is 3% of GDP. Uh, why are we uh, entrenched there? Uh, 
it, it is a drain on our resources. If you care about our comp comp competition with China, it is a drain uh, on uh, American competitiveness, on American leadership. And, and so if you have that view, then I think our uh, first responsibility is to, 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 to extricate ourselves in, in that area uh, it, to the extent we possibly can. The maximum pressure campaign, I don't see how it has worked. If it, if it had worked, you wouldn't have had 25 times the increase of Iran's nuclear capability during uh, the Trump era. So I don't see the evidence. I mean, I'd be curious if people want to put in uh, genuinely the, the comments of where they see it working. I mean, I, I have not, unless they're saying for four years it didn't work and suddenly now it started to work. But you, there's no evidence that I've seen that it has slowed down in any way Iran's nuclear program. And the idea that we're going to have a regime change in Iran, I mean, you would have thought we learned that lesson after, it, after 1979, but uh, you know, old habits die hard and there's still people thinking that we could somehow effectuate regime change, which is just utterly naive. Let me ask you a, a, a different question in, uh, which goes to these sanctions issues, but from a different angle. And that is that, um, you know, uh, uh, to what extent act actual physical lifting of sanctions and, and also removing designations, for instance, on Iran's central bank as a, a terrorist entity really lies within the domain of Congress, that it actually requires um, congressional approval. And, and uh, when is it that, uh, you know, essentially it becomes, it, it becomes up to Congress whether or not some of these things move forward? It's a good question. I don't know the details uh, in terms of the legislation itself. I think some of it, Congress gives the president the authority to make that determination. And so the president Biden has that power. In other cases, I think it would require Congress to actually act to remove things. But in my sense is just like Trump decided as president to implement the sanctions, Biden has a lot of leeway uh, to remove the sanctions because the way the congressional statute is worded, it says we give these, this authority to the president uh, to be able to impose the sanctions. And so there's discretion there. Uh, so um, I, we'd have to look at the details and have a constitutional lawyer study it. Uh, but my sense is the president has a lot of uh, discretion. Right, right. So, I mean, it always sort of looks like these are easier to put down because it's easy to sort of say, this is a terrorist entity, but then to lift it, you have to literally argue a much, I mean, the bar is much higher. You have to say, yeah. verify, you, you, you certify that this entity has never ever engaged in, in terrorist activity. And, and, um, uh, and so it, it sort of is, it's easier to put these in than, than to lift it, even if, even if uh, the administration promises it at the table. I, I agree with you. And that's why Pompeo and, and Trump did what they did, to put Biden in a politically difficult box. And that's why the Biden administration, I think, was slow out of the gate, given the president's understandable focus on uh, domestic issues. Let me ask you, Dean Besser, what do you think in terms of uh, whether the maximum pressure campaign has worked and whether there's any alternative to uh, trying to engage and join the JCPOA. Well, I, I mean, if the objective was to get Iran to a new deal, which is what the administration thought, um, it hasn't worked. If the idea was to bring Iran to its knees economically, uh, uh, it, it hasn't worked. And if the goal was regime change, 
I think the only kind of regime change we're seeing in Iran is that the hardliners are becoming more hardline and, and more powerful. So we may end up dealing with, with, a, with a much, much more difficult country than, than the one that we were used to without any gains. And as you mentioned, uh, the, Iran is marching towards building a, a huge capacity of 20% enriched uranium, which that would give them a lot of leverage at the, at the uh, negotiating table. So my sense is, I think maybe the United States thought the longer it waits, the, the, the better its hand would be. But I think we're in a situation where the, now the longer it waits, the weaker its hand is going to be. And um, I think the legacy of the President Trump is that he hasn't left anybody with any good options that, that you, could, you could exercise. And then I also take your point about Iran's presidential elections. I think we now have passed that. It's going to be difficult to change the uh, impact, the, uh, impact the public mood in, in the short time frame we have. And, uh, and our, your interlocutor always, always makes a difference. Uh, Iranians often say there's no difference between American presidents. We, we don't believe that. And it's the, the, the other side holds true. There, there, there might be uh, minor differences, but those matter a lot in who you're talking to. Yeah. I, I think my colleague also had a question for you, Professor um, Bajoli. Before I get to my question, there was another audience question that I think um, we haven't covered today, which is um, uh, relates to our conversation, which is the the tit for tat that's happening uh, on the seas between Israel and uh, Iran when it comes to the tankers. And uh, Representative Khanna, do you see this as hampering or in any way impacting um, uh, US negotiations uh, and diplomatic efforts more broadly when it comes to um, uh, the JCPOA and, and negotiations with Iran? I think it obviously makes the situation more uh, complicated, the more uh, conflict you have. And, and that's why I think our role ought to be to try to de-escalate the tension between uh, Iran and Israel or Iran and the Saudis. The, the, the conflict doesn't benefit the United States in any way. Our interest is to see uh, a, a reset of the Iran relationship, to be able to uh, make sure we aren't facing a, any terrorist threats uh, at, at home. Uh, and that we aren't involved in these long ending wars. And to do that, I think de-escalation of conflict in the Middle East is, is in the US interest. So my question for you is, as there is uh, increased um, support for different progressive forces within uh, elected office uh, in Congress, um, especially from the congressional side, um, the and and you yourself as a part of the prog uh, progressive caucus. How do you see the future of um, the progressive caucus and those who believe in progressive causes within the United States, the electoral base? Um, trying to push for more of the types of things that you were talking about today and those within your caucus talk about when it comes to realignment of uh, US foreign policy, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East and these forever wars? Well, I think the tie has to be to people's lives here in the United States. And if you, Janet Yellen had a wonderful line yesterday when speaking to the caucus, she said, the American, American budget has basically become a military plus pension and we have not been making productive investments in the United States to, in terms of our uh, education, our infrastructure, our growth. Uh, I think what we have to say to people is, uh, look, uh, our competition in the 21st century is China. And the question is, is free enterprise 
uh, inclusive, multiracial democracy going to win or authoritarian capitalism with a largely homogenous society, but one that is three times, four times eventually as large as ours. It's a big challenge. And if we want to take that challenge seriously, because we believe in liberal democracy, because we believe in free enterprise, because we believe in nations that welcome immigration, then uh, we can't uh, be uh, involved in these uh, wars in, a, in the Middle East uh, for a resource that has had having less and less value as we all collectively move uh, towards an energy independent future for the United States and one more and more dependent on renewable energy. And we ought to be looking at our involvement in the Middle East uh, with, a, with not a sense of a, a romanticized vision of the past, uh, but in a sense of a, a, a hard reality uh, from a, what, what realists would say is what is in the US strategic interest, and not just our moral interest, but our strategic interest. And I think uh, if I were a historian, I'm, I'm guessing uh, 50 years from now, writing about these two great powers, the United States and China emerging, and uh, the United States hopefully winning that, uh, that, that, that race. And I would say, why was so much bandwidth spent on Iran? What, what explains that obsession by the United States of America when uh, you know, it would be as if uh, Sparta and Athens were worried about some tiny island uh, that, that Sparta, all that Sparta was talking about, or Athens was talking about is this tiny island, not Sparta. And so I, I think it's a huge suck of our resources uh, and our time and our energy, where really we ought to be figuring out how do we become the most productive, innovative nation in the world. Uh, Congressman Khanna, thank you very much for uh, this uh, very rich conversation. I, I, I think um, uh, it, it spoke to the depth of not only uh, your knowledge about the region, but also you, you, you provided very thoughtful answers to varieties of aspects of U.S.-Iran policy. So we're very grateful for you joining us today and shedding light on this complicated topic. And we hope that we have opportunity to welcome you back to SICE. Well, thank you. I always learn, obviously, when I uh, have these conversations and appreciate your counsel and expertise and uh, excellent conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you.